that. Wonderful. Thank you. Ministry. We try to keep a little bit of a record of folks. We get some cards from individuals, and we try to pass those along to the uh, to the care ministry team of folks who have been affected, just in the neighborhood who will write something. Usually they don't call and leave a message. That was kind of unique, but it gave us a chance to publish that for you and let you see the impact that that's just reaching out as having an impact on people's lives. So we're grateful for that. I'm also grateful. I want to say this thank you to the folks who have been responding to the Lord's promptings in prayer and just hearing God's awakening of individuals who feel the burden to pray and have responded to the Lord. This morning for our corporate time, we had over 70 people that were here praying and asking for God's favor. So uh, thank you guys so very much for responding to the Lord. In your outline, I want to begin with this provoking quote. It's kind of hard not to read John Piper and remain unprovoked. But look at this quote with me. It says, My father was an evangelist. He had stories, so many stories for each age group. Stories of glorious conversions and stories of horrific refusals to believe followed by tragic deaths. For me as a boy, one of the most gripping illustrations my fiery father used was the story of a man converted in old age. The church had prayed for this man for decades. He was hard and resistant, but this time, for some reason, he showed up when my father was preaching. At the end of the service, during a hymn, to everyone's amazement, he came and took my father's hand. They sat down together on the front pew of the church as the people were dismissed. God opened his heart to the gospel of Christ, and he was saved from his sins and given eternal life. But that did not stop him from sobbing and saying, as the tears ran down his wrinkled face, and what an impact it made on me to hear my father say this through his own tears. I've wasted it. I've wasted it. This was a story that gripped me more than all the stories of young people who died in car wrecks before they were converted. The story of an old man weeping that he had wasted his life. In those early years, God awakened in me a fear and a passion not to waste my life. The thought of coming to my old age and saying through tears, I've wasted it, I've wasted it, was a fearful and horrible thought to me question how will you know whether you have wasted your life or led a fulfilling life what will you use as a measuring stick at the end of your days or maybe even right now to question have i wasted my life or no no i have lived a very fulfilled life see the only way you can have a fulfilled life is to have something to fill up. You have to have some kind of a container that you've created throughout life to fill your life up with. And kind of the little giveaway here this morning is I, I kind of want to know what brochure on the well-lived life are you and I reading from? How will we know when we've really lived life well? Is it when your golf game gets to be a certain level? 
drive the right car, invest the right way, maybe taken enough cruises and seen enough of the world and you're at an age now you can look back over your life and you can think, oh, it was a well-lived life. Well, we're going to start something this morning, a little mini-series, and it's actually going to be a study in the book of Acts, the life lived by believers in the book of Acts. And we're not going to study the entire book. We're just going to take a few segments out of it and learn from their lives. And the title of the series is The Life We Were Meant to Live. And this morning, I just want to introduce the, the thought, and I want to put it against the backdrop of the brochures that are available for you to live your life against. This quote, the next quote from Albert Sue, it's from the book The Suburban Christian. I've read a couple of books lately on suburbia uh, for a couple of reasons. Uh, one, because we are very much a church in the suburbs. That's who we are. Uh, that's the people that we have the most access to. I think it would, would behoove us to understand the people that we are seeking to reach and what makes them tick. But what I find as I read about what makes suburbanites tick, I find that it's the same stuff that makes us tick. Because we are suburbanites for the most part. And unless you look at that carefully, you don't realize that you've already been infected by a disease. And, and it is in your blood. And it runs through your bloodstream. So hopefully it's a couple of quotes here that we'll look at will help to awaken in us. Wow, I didn't realize how much of this was in me. Albert Sue in his book, The Suburban Christian, says... I was struck by the significance of suburban living as a spiritual quest or pilgrimage. We're all here looking for something. People live in suburbs for any number of reasons. We may have come here because of a job change or for a relationship. We come in search of affordable housing, good schools, or safe communities. Or we may have grown up in suburbia by default. Over half of the American population now lives in suburbia which makes us the largest mission field in the United States, is the suburbs. Whatever the case, we who live in suburbia have aspirations for a certain kind of life. Now, think carefully with me. Isn't that true of every one of us here? We live where we live, do what we do, approach life the way we do, because we want a certain type of life. I mean, how many people here this morning are just kind of like, no, not me. I'd take any old life, you know. It doesn't matter where I live. doesn't matter how I dress. doesn't matter the car I drive. doesn't matter the job I have. doesn't matter the people I'm around. I would just take any old life. That's not the suburban mindset. The suburban mindset wants a particular life, a particular way. Even those who come to suburbia for less than noble reasons do so out of particular, a particular vision of their ideal life. Some move to suburbia out of fear of those unlike them, fleeing from racial diversity and searching for a place safer and more comfortable to their pre-existing prejudices. Others care little for their neighbors and fashion suburban lives of self-centered materialism, acquisition of possessions, and status climbing. Whenever people describe suburbia, invariably they use phrases like, a good place to raise kids, or where people settle down and start a family. Inherent in these comments is an aspiration of hope for their future and a dream of a good life for their children. In other words, suburbia is the context and the setting for the fulfillment of people's hopes and dreams. Now, question for us. 
What are you and I hoping for and dreaming of? That is wrapped up really in some of these color brochures that are available to us in the suburban lifestyle and mindset. Now what's important for us to realize is that this mindset is extremely, extremely contagious. It is almost impossible that it hasn't crept into us in some form or fashion, in some degree of influence over the way we think. Uh, Here's another book that I've read recently, Death by Suburb by a fellow named David Goetz. David was uh, an editor for Leadership Journal. He writes often for Christianity Today and other publications. And it's interesting how he self-analyzes and self-confesses. And I think if we'll be honest and humble, we will find ourselves sounding a little bit like Mr. Goetz. He begins his book by saying, My wife and I worship at Latte Temple most Sundays before heading to church. And recently a homeless man asked for a ride to the College Avenue train station as I climbed into my SUV with two coffees worth almost $9 in hand. I told him to jump in. Are you headed to church, he said. Everyone goes to church here. I do too. It's it's an interesting suburb. He said even the homeless people have a church. A church building fills at least one corner of most every intersection. On Sundays, high school auditoriums are rented by startups. Here, there is no shortage of houses of worship. He says, I'm at church almost every Sunday with my family. I play tepid electrical guitar licks in the worship band for our contemporary service. I don't give as much money as I should to the church, but I hope to after I make it big. And I fear that my lack of Bible reading may be the primary reason I feel such spiritual malaise while living the good life in my safe burb. Somebody just told me that 90% of Christians don't read the Bible every day. I sure don't. I've had a few good stretches, but I'm not in one now. And I've never read the Bible in one year like my mom did. My family and I live in a county that recently was ranked in the 99th percentile in the United States for quality of life. On most days, my biggest decision is lunch, the atomic turkey or the veggie panini. Our suburb, an older one of glorious hardwoods, harbors an intriguing mix of folks who can somehow afford its nosebleed housing prices. (laughs) Plumbers live next door to investment bankers, fixed income retirees who bought their small ranch-style home 30 or 40 years before prices skyrocketed, live across the street from 35-year-old bond traders who work in Chicago, who mortgage their peace of mind to tear down a 50-year-old 1,200-square-foot ranch and erect a brick starter castle. (laughs) Our Mayberry Public Elementary School sits in white-skinned suburbia, though busing from apartments just down the street in a suburb to the north adds to our children's experience of ethnic and economic diversity. An acquaintance told me that her neighborhood... An acquaintance told me that her neighborhood yanked her first. An acquaintance told me that her neighbor yanked her first child out of the school after his kindergarten year, transferring him to a Christian grammar school. The woman apparently felt uncomfortable with all the kids from quote the apartments in Little Johnny's class. Too diverse, she said. Besides, don't kids at the Christian school end up getting better SAT scores? In the introduction to crabgrass, I'm skipping some stuff here, I just want to give you a quick flavor. In the introduction to Crabgrass Frontier, it's a book by sociologist Kenneth Jackson, he writes, the space around us, 
the physical organization of neighborhoods, roads, yards, houses, and apartments, sets up living patterns that condition our behavior. What Jackson observes sociologically may also be true spiritually. Listen very carefully. Whether blue-collar or white, Yankee or Southern, West Coast or East, North Dakota or Southern Texas, the environment of the suburbs weathers one's soul peculiarly. That is, there are environmental variables, mostly invisible, that oxidize the human spirit, like what happens to the metal of an ungaraged car. I think my suburb, as safe and religiously coded as it is, keeps me from Jesus. Or at least, my suburb and the religion of the suburbs obscures the real Jesus. The living patterns of the good life affect me more than I know. I think that's a very wise observation. I bring that to your attention because I think sometimes we become oblivious to the conditions that are most influencing us. Things that are on the, the doorsteps of why we think the way we think. Why are we impatient? What goals have we set in our lives? Why do we pursue the things that we're after? And we become blind to what's informing us along the way. Now, now what I'm not trying to do today, so I can alleviate everybody who's getting uncomfortable for the wrong reasons, what I'm not trying to do is, is say uh, suburbia is sin, living in suburbia is sin, Um, everybody should move either to the country to get farther out of suburbia or into the inner city. Uh, No, people live where they live. And wherever you live, you will be affected by the environment. Be aware, suburbia has stuff growing in it. It's where people are moving toward. Now, if people are moving toward something, people do what they want to do. They have reasons why they're moving toward this. We should be informed as to whether those reasons are becoming our reasons for how we live our life. The life that we're wanting to live versus perhaps the life that we're meant to live. So this is not an anti-suburbs message. Uh, It is just a backdrop for us to realize that some other things may be scooting into the role of primary influence over who we are, over what we're after, what we value, what's become most important to us. And if I were to ask us, where's the reference point for you for building the life worth living? Where's the reference point? Where do you start from? Now just look around you, look at your life, look at your family, look at your choices in history, and look at the people that have gone before you, and I think you'd have to agree, most of us, the reference point is whatever we were kind of born into. That's usually the reference point. Our family, the traditions, the values of our family, the social strata of our family. We tend to stay in the same social strata. The career pursuits. If your dad was a white-collar guy, then you probably go after white-collar jobs. If he was a blue-collar guy, you probably go after blue-collar activity. Uh, The religion that you inherited. Many people grow up and go into the religion that they're in because that's what their mom and them were into. If you're in New Orleans, the neighborhood that you're in probably reflects the neighborhood you grew up in. You grew up in a certain type of neighborhood, you stayed in that type of neighborhood. Now, now maybe you ventured from, uh, you know, like I did, from River Ridge to Metairie. You know, that was a big move. Uh, But whatever you kind of got exposed to, 
is what you've kind of inherited. And that begins to be a reference point for us in terms of you know, what brochure do I want to read from? What, what do I want to go after in order at the end of the day to say, I have lived a very satisfying and fulfilling life. I live the life I was meant to live. Well, that's probably where we start. How many of us, though, start with the Bible and let the Bible be the reference point for what life is supposed to contain? What kind of experiences are you supposed to have? What kind of pursuits are you supposed to go after? What kind of values do you want to hold? What things are secondary and third and way down a list of priorities? And which ones are critical? Which ones should you be pulling your hair out about? And which ones do you just need to blow off and lighten up? Get a life, will you? Well, who's informing us about what gets us all jazzed? Well, when we set out to live life, it's almost like if we were going to create a, a great meal to eat here. There's a couple of ways you could do this using this biblical thought pattern. You could sort of go shop at the suburban meat market and go get you a nice, thick cut of suburbia. Slice that baby. Have the butcher slice it up for you. Take it home and then sprinkle biblical seasonings all over it. I think that's what most of us have ended up doing. We have in us the core values and ideas and life patterns of suburbia. And then we tried to kind of just make it taste like Christianity. Just, just sprinkle a little bit of this Christian magic powder stuff on it and when we go to eat it mm, doesn't it taste like christianity well in some ways yeah but at its very core we have something that is going to always be contrary to christianity see i think a more accurate way for us to eat the meal of our life is to to take a, a nice thick cut of the bible and set it on the plate of suburbia and that is, the, that is the location of the life in which most of us are going to live out our lives. So we're going to be in the setting of the suburbs in how we are living our lives. But yet we are needing to be biblical and have our pursuits in life to be defined biblically. Now you think for a moment about the things that are, that are really running us ragged. You know, we're, we're trying to sort through thoughts at the early age of, you know, do I... Do I become a dentist or do I become a construction worker? Oh, what am I going to do? What kind of degree am I going to get? What kind of job should I have? Should I, should I live in a three-bedroom home in Gentilly or a two-bedroom apartment in Kenner? Oh, should my kids go to public school or private school? Am I saving enough in my 401k plan in my stock portfolio? I mean, these are the things that we're really worried about, some of these things. Well, can you look into the Bible and find that the Bible doesn't seem to be all that worried about those things? It's not that the Bible doesn't care about them. Does, does God care what career you choose? Sure he does. But to what degree should it climb to the level of top importance? Because when you read the Bible, if you take a slice of this thing, how much time did Jesus spend preparing careers for his people that he was leading and discipling? That doesn't mean it's not important. doesn't mean these things are insignificant. But what it does mean, if we're not careful, is that we let them crowd their way to the top of significance. And when they do that, they're going to push some other things into the realm of not as significant. And that's where the danger is. 
when you look at what the Bible makes very clear. When you look at the Bible and you say, what is, what is clear from this Bible that I need to be experiencing in my life? That I need to be going after in my life? I need to be very concerned as to whether these things are experienced and observable in the way in which I'm pursuing and walking out life. What things are really, really clear and what things are not so clear? We are very concerned about whether we live in a certain neighborhood. And we're very concerned about that. There's probably not anybody here who just, oh, I don't care. Just give me any old house, any old place. I'll be fine with that. No, we're very concerned about that. But, but many Christians are not very concerned about whether they've been baptized in the Holy Spirit. Well, you know, I don't know. Maybe I have, maybe I haven't. Well, I don't think I have. Um, and I'll just move on from that. Unless you bring it up, it's, it's not really a concern. But we, we're shopping for houses. We want to be in the right... Ra- oh, one came open for us. We want to, we want to go after that. We're, we're very concerned about whether we're saving enough money for retirement, depending on how old you are. If you're pivot age on down, retirement probably doesn't mean a thing to you. I'm really, the world that, that you're living in, the younger you are, the more you are living in a world that doesn't care to save. It, it wants everything right now and it spins itself into oblivion. But if you're an older generation, then you're very concerned about whether you're saving enough for retirement. Maybe if you're younger, you're concerned about whether you're saving enough to get into the house. And so we're very clear. Saving is very important to us. And we're concerned about that. But we're not very concerned about whether or not we are leading people to Christ personally. If we looked around the room and we took a survey, how many of us are bothered by our lack of witness to others? The last time we told anybody about Christ, pursued an opportunity to build a relationship that had the, the gospel content as its goal that, so that that person could be saved. Well, we're concerned about saving just not the right kind of saving. We're concerned about career advancement. Very concerned about career advancement. We want to work for the right company. We want to have to be steps in front of us that we can move along into the right place career-wise. But we don't tend to be really, really concerned about kingdom advancement. Whether the kingdom of God is moving out into new realms, into new people's lives. And these are, these are suburban ideas, right? You realize career advancement doesn't even exist for people in third world countries. They're not worried about that. We're very concerned about electrical power, aren't we? You just let your power go out around your house and see what you do. I'll tell you what I did. I always went out, I don't know, a few weeks ago. I just went out for some reason. Fifteen minutes. In fifteen minutes, I'm on the phone. I'm calling energy. I'm doing that dial-in thing. Everybody knows how to do that, right? You call in and you, they check your phone number and they, they let you know that power will be restored in two hours. About 15 minutes, man. And I'm on that thing. Because I am not going to sit in my house without air conditioning. And who knows, the refrigeration can make this food spoil. But how many Christians are experiencing a severe power outage spiritually in their life? And, you know, um, well, I mean, now that you're mentioning it, I'm... I'm I'm a little bothered by that. You know, not overcoming sin, not becoming triumphant and victorious and moving, not praying for people and seeing stuff happen in their lives, not praying for the sick and seeing the sick get healed, laying hands on people and seeing spiritual gifts get imparted into their lives, 
praying about situations and seeing those situations get moved. Mountains are being cast into the sea. See, the Bible talks a lot about power, doesn't it? But what's happened to us that that kind of power doesn't get us on the phone in 15 minutes? I'm just not as concerned about that. So is it it wrong that I wanted my air conditioner back on 15 minutes? No. The problem is, everything I've just mentioned is higher up the list of priorities than the things that the Bible makes much more obvious and clear. Witnessing to others, advancing the kingdom, being baptized in the Holy Spirit. You understand, these are top priorities in the Bible. But yet for us, we don't find them on our radar screen as easily. See, this is the life we were meant to live. Don't get to the end of your life looking at those things and be sober in that moment and go, Oh, Lord, I missed it. I wasted my life. Even though you may be somewhere in one of these magazines, but you wasted your life. Well, what we're going to do, and hopefully will be very informing, is we're just going to going to waltz through a little bit of the experiences and the life and the priorities and the, uh, the pursuits of the early Christians that are in the book of Acts and see if maybe their example can provoke us and help us in this category. But before we do that, there was some preparation leading up to the book of Acts. It really was the things that Jesus was instilling into people's lives. He was, he was planting expectations in them as to what life was supposed to be about. What was the life worth living that Jesus was referring to? So I want to back up. I want to look at some passages. I've listed some of them in your outline. We'll look at some of them. We'll read them from Scripture. But if you'd listened to Jesus and been with him, what expectations would he have been sowing into your life? One of the things that you would find an amazing amount of deafening silence is some of the elements of suburbia. He would have said next to nothing about them. You can't find Jesus talking a whole lot about what location to live in, which neighborhood is really important that you're a part of. He doesn't talk a whole lot about education. How important it is that you get the right education because you know that education is going to open up opportunities for you. He doesn't seem to be real bent out of shape about that. He doesn't talk to people about making sure their stock portfolio is in great shape. When he talks about finances, he tends to talk more about a concern as to whether there's idolatry in, their, in people's finances, whether they put too much hope and trust in finances. He doesn't seem to be wanting to make sure that you have managed it toward a future benefit somehow. He seems to make sure you have not put your hope in those things. See, the things that Jesus was most about and mo- made the most noise about, it doesn't mean these things are, are problematic for us to be wise, and for us to have a proper level of attention given to them. And I'm not trying to say today, everybody quit your jobs. Don't have any ambitions. Don't desire to do anything. Live in a shack. Don't get a job. Um, don't, you know, clothing, just you know, buy some rags and live in them for the rest of your life. That's not what I'm saying. Please hear me. I'm not saying that. Anybody who's looking right now, because I, I can look around and I can tell, there's some people shopping for an out right now. This guy's gone ballistic. He's out of touch. This is so extreme. 
Okay, can you just reel your own heart in right now? Because what your heart is dying to do, it's dying to get off the hook. It's dying to say, you you messing with where I live right now. And I don't want to change anything that you're describing in my life. So I'm going to dismiss you as, as right above an acorn in intelligence right now. And so please hear me. It is not sinful for you to have a good, robust career. It is not sinful for you to prepare for that. It is not sinful for you to prepare to have a retirement. That's not sinful. It's not sinful for you to choose to live in a nice home. It's not sinful for you to have air conditioning in your home. These are not sinful things. The sadness is we have made those things the things we cling to. And then we can't figure out why we're lacking joy, why we're lacking peace. See, the life we're meant to live, which I want to briefly describe a little bit today, and then we're going to look at the life we're meant to live. The life we're meant to live doesn't make those the main priorities. Were there wealthy people in the Bible? Yes, there were. Were the people who had different levels of comfort going on in their life? Yes, there were. Does the Bible condemn them? No, it does not. But what the Bible also doesn't do is it doesn't make that an obsession. It doesn't make it primary. It doesn't make it a focal point. And in the suburbs, people live in the suburbs. We live in the suburbs. People live in the suburbs for a reason. We're after something. Be careful that what we're after, like what the world's after, hasn't displaced the life we were meant to live. That God had in mind for Christians to be experiencing. Well, let's walk through a little bit of what Jesus had to say. John chapter 10, verse 10. Before you start thinking that, Jesus was just into this monastic misery. That's what he wanted. Everybody go move away to the side of a mountain, put on brown clothing, walk around in the dust, sleep on the floor. You know, just be miserable until you go to heaven. No, Jesus was into the good life. Let's make sure we believe that. Jesus was into the good life. John 10, verse 10. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Please be clear. The Son of God is not inviting everybody into the, uh, the, the miserable group. Welcome to misery. You want to be serious about God? Then be serious about misery. No, he was into an abundant life. Now what needs to be discerned is how do you get to the abundant life? His brochure or a different one? See, because part of the problem that, even in this passage, this passage gets birthed out of a problematic background. There's a thief who wants to steal the good life from you. There's a thief today, there was a thief then, who wants to steal from you the good life. So you may want to have the good life, but the enemy doesn't want you to have the good life. Now, how does that come to us? Well, it's not a guy with a pitchfork and pajama red outfit on, advertising, hooky spooky, I'm against you. How does it come to us? Well, in this setting... What, what generated Jesus saying this is it came from the religious leaders of the day. For him, the religious leaders and their ideas and their way of doing things and the things that they prioritized as most important were stealing life from people. When you get to John chapter 10, you just come out of the chapter, John chapter 9, where Jesus, the life giver himself, comes and encounters this man who has been born blind. 
spent his whole life blind. Remember, Jesus makes mud and he smears it in the man's eyes. And the man goes and washes and he recovers his sight. Now, in a sense of experiencing life, you've just been touched by God. You are tasting life, my friend. And what happens? The Pharisees come behind that, make all kinds of noise, kick up all kinds of dust off the ground. Whoa, whoa, time out. He can't do that. That's not according to the traditions. That's not according to how we understand God. Idea after idea after idea. This guy's from the devil. And they start trying to get people together and discredit what happened. They call in his parents. You know, was he really blind all of his life? I mean, he's making this big noise about he's been touched by God and God healed him. Is that really true? And even, even though their testimony was, yeah, that's, that's true, they shun them, put them away. It's these religious individuals with their ideas. Do you remember what Jesus said about their ideas? Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you shut up the kingdom of God from men. You cut them off from the good life. You force them to live some other ideas than the one that I give. That lead to life. I came that they would have life and have it abundantly. But there's a thief in the midst. And with his ideas, you live according to his ideas and you're going to miss out on the good life. Well, today, today there's some religious component stealing the good life from people. How many churches are full of, of deadness? Go through rituals? Attend a certain amount, practice these things, and yet people's souls are dried up like a desert. There's no move of God taking place. There's no good life going on in their, in their midst. That's a thief, and it's come to steal and kill and destroy. It's present in this city. But that's not the only ideas that we're having to compete with to have a good life. Suburbia is full of ideas, guys. The American dream is full of ideas that can become primary influencers in our lives and are striving for them. Do you know how much jealousy is in our hearts? Because we don't have what somebody else has. Well, what made you think that was so important to get it? Well, I've read too many brochures. I'm convinced that somewhere in one of these magazines is the good life. And I'm mad as a hornet that that guy over there seems to be having. Why does he get that? Why is God doing that? And that person's like, well, now we're mad at God because that person's got more of the brochure than we've got. We go to bed at night just mad as all get out. Bitter. And then we get the stuff. And then we go to bed fearful at night we're going to lose it. Oh, the bill came for this. And oh, we can't pay for that. And oh, what if I lose my job? I heard a thing the other day. Oh, they could be shutting down part of this. I could lose my job. Now we're all fearful. And all along the way, you have the Son of God saying, I came that you'd have a life and you'd have it abundantly. Well, Jesus, I'm too worried to have life. Okay, I appreciate the offer, but I'm stressed out. I'm anxious. I own so much stuff and I want to do so many things. And and I'm so disillusioned now because we were wanting to take a cruise around the world and we're not going to be able to. What has happened to us? This is a recipe for miserable Christians. Christians. See, let the world be miserable about these things. And the other sadness is the end of the the church has come some form of cultural Christianity versus radical discipleship. When you observe these lives in the next few weeks, you're going to find people that did crazy stuff. They were radical. 
They took chances. They launched out. They had a vision. They tried things they had never done before. They did all kinds of uncomfortable stuff. Something in them was powerful and influential in how they lived their lives. Today, there's a Christianity, it's almost like, almost like a vaccination. You know how vaccination works? You get, you get inoculated. You, know, you, you, get a little bit, you get a little bit of that thing injected into you. Not enough to where it overpowers your body and you actually get the disease. Just a little bit of enough of it for your body to raise up resistance and attack that thing and keep it. And now your resistance is high and now you are not as vulnerable to getting that from normal means. Well, it's almost like we've done that with Christianity. We've injected just enough Christianity people. Not a whole lot. We don't want to get crazy here, right? We don't want to make Jesus Lord. We don't want the power of God to be coming from your life and everybody's life. We don't want to get nutso on this Christian thing. So let's just give people a little bit of vaccination. Here's a little bit of Jesus. You just got to believe. You don't have to believe a whole lot. Just believe this much and, and come to church every once in a while. And, you know, if you find a minute to read the Bible, that would be nice, too. Here's a little bit of Christianity. You know what it does to us? It inoculates us. And it makes us resist the whole thing. See, these are ideas. These are thieves. They are stealing the life we were meant to live from us. And we need to be looking out for them very carefully. Jesus said, I came that you would have life and you'd have it abundantly. If you're wondering whether Jesus is a killjoy or not, he chose words carefully. I came that you'd have zoe. Life in the Greek it means the state of one who is possessed of vitality. You are living life with an emphatic emphasis. It says of the absolute fullness of life, both essential and ethical, which belongs to God. I came that you could have the kind of life that God has in you. Listen, before Jesus came, people had life. They drew breath. They got up in the morning. They ate their breakfast and went about their business. Why did Jesus have to come? So that you can have the kind of life God wanted you to have. The kind of life that God has himself. I came so that you could have that life. But not just a cup full. I came that you could have abundant life. Perisos in the Greek. It means pertaining to a quantity so abundant as to be considerably more than what one would expect or anticipate. That's the life Jesus came to give. It was almost like... You know, you're out on a hot day outside, sweating, and Jesus stands on the edge of the playground with a fire hose and says, you want to sip? You watch that thing get turned on and just almost blow a guy's head off. This is what God's pouring out. It's not just a, here, look, here's just a little drop on the tip of your tongue of life. You got just enough? Can you survive until I come back to get you now? I came so that you could have more life than you can handle kind of life that God himself has. That's what I came to give to you. Now, how are you going to get there? Look at these verses. John 16, verse 23. Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now, you've asked nothing in my name. Ask, and you will receive that your joy may be full. John 15, verse 11. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. Uh, can we get an accurate picture here? Jesus is not the religious killjoy. He's not the guy who comes along and drains the party out of party. I came 
so that whatever was stealing your life wouldn't steal your life anymore and that you could have life, lots of it, abundantly, beyond anything you could even imagine. And you could have fullness of joy. Now, whatever it is that Jesus is advertising and the way to get it is being competed with in our minds by whatever is competing with it. And put enough religious symbols up there. For some of us, religion is in the way of the abundant life that Jesus promised. The Apostle Paul told the Romans in Romans 14, 17, he says, For the kingdom of God is not, it's not a matter of eating and drinking. The Bible needs to correct sometimes what we have made the kingdom into, what we have made life into. It's not a matter of eating and drinking. It's not a matter of property. It's not a matter of education. It's not a matter of travel. The kingdom of God is not a matter of those things. The kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. See, don't miss out on righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit and get to the end of your life with your brochures of other things all filled up, only to go, I wasted it. I didn't live the life I was meant to live. That was scattered all over the pages of Scripture. Well, what else did Jesus say about living this life? That happens to also be about abundance and joy. Because what, what he said and how we're to live, and, the, and this is how you live your life, was to lead us to the abundant life he came to give to us. So there's a manner in which to get to there. So it's almost like these are stones, if you will. Jesus painted this image. Here's this abundant life full of joy and peace and righteousness. And here's a stone to walk on. When you step on that one, then step on this one next. And step on that one next. And step on this one next. And it leads you into these things. I want to look at some of these quick references in Scripture for us today. John 14, turn there with me. All of these, except for Luke 24, were spoken by Jesus on the last night that he was together with his disciples. In the same context in which he is promising them great joy. If you'll just ask, my Father will give. So that your joy can be full. So we're in the context here of this abundant, wonderful, joy-filled, peaceful adventure when Jesus includes these thoughts as well. Here, here's the stones to walk on. Now, before we even read these, we need to remember, God, your ways are not like our ways. As high as the heavens are above the earth, so are your ways higher than ours. When you read some of this stuff, you're going to go, did I read that right? This doesn't seem to take me to an abundant life full of joy and peace. Well, yet that's exactly where Jesus promised it would take us. John 14, verse 12. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I'm going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Remember, Jesus had promised. And if you ask, I want to do it so that your joy can be full. Now, now, joy about what in this context? What is the great joy about? It's about having requests met and answered by God. Well, requests for what in this context? Requests that we would do the very works Jesus did and the greater works that he referred to. See, sometimes 
Sometimes we're praying our prayers right out of Cruise Travel Magazine. And unfortunately, there's a huge version of Christianity out there that, that takes all these teachings on prayer and answers to prayer and faith, and then after they've done teaching you about those scriptures that exist in the Bible, they teach you how to open up Cruise Travel Magazine next and say, you can have what you want. Pray for the cruise line. Well, I'm not saying God doesn't want to give you a cruise and doesn't want to bless you and have you enjoy things. But the context of this passage is, whoever believes in me is going to do the works that I did and greater works than these. Pray and ask for them. Seek God for them. My Father wants to answer you and He wants to give you what you're requesting. When we're doing what? When we are doing the works that Jesus did. That's what we're called to. That's a stone. Stand on that stone and say, in my life, I'm called to do the works Jesus did. And amazingly, even greater works are to be accomplished through the church than what he did. Do you find your foot standing on that stone? Do you find that we're concerned about the works of Jesus taking place in our lives? Not just whether our electricity works. Keep reading in verse 15, John 14. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. Now, next week or so, we're going to make a clarifying statement about the life of we were meant to live and the Spirit of God. On this last night that Jesus is together with his disciples, he is all over this topic over and over and over again. I'm going away, but the Holy Spirit's coming to you. I'm going away, and it's better that I go. Why is it better? Because if I don't go, the Spirit's not coming to you. So it's better that I go, because if I go, then the Spirit's going to come into your life. So the life you were meant to live is supposed to be a spirit-driven and filled life. That's what Jesus is pointing to here. Look in verse 27 of John 14. He says, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled. Neither let them be Afraid. Now, can you boil all these statements together? A couple of chapters earlier, Jesus said, I came that you could have life and have it abundantly. He says, pray and ask my Father that your joy may be full. He says, I give you peace, not as the world gives. Now, how does the world give peace? By being able to play enough golf? By having enough money? I mean, how many of you realize what many of us are after is we just want to feel like we're going to make it. Or we just want to feel like we've got enough money to where I don't have to worry about how the bills get paid. For a while. You know, we have an inheritance, or we've managed to save, there's lots in the bank. And I'm at peace. See, I can go to bed at night because I know that there's enough buffer in my bank accounts to keep me safe. Okay, well, that's great, American. That really works for you. Does that theology work for the person who lays his head in the dirt in a, in a shack somewhere in a third world country who doesn't even know what a bank account is, who everything they own isn't worth a hill of beans, and they don't even know where their next set of beans are coming from so they can eat their next meal? Can that person lay their head down at night and be at peace? 
Well, he's supposed to be because the same Son of God speaking to him. As a matter of fact, there's more of them than there are of us who are having to live a life of peace with no bank accounts and no earning potential. And no, oh, I'm a construction worker and there's lots of new houses being built. And ah, oh, I'm at peace, see, because the field is green. And I'm at peace. Oh, guys, we've turned into Americans, not Christians. Christians don't get their peace from that. The peace that Jesus is talking about isn't found in the size of a bank account. How many of us are very uncomfortable, though, if that's not the way we feel it should be after we've met with our financial advisors? You do realize, Keith, you, Keith, you know how much it costs to send a kid to, to college? Yeah, yeah, a lot more money than I got. Then you read the article, in 20 years, you know, in 20 years, I'll have to sell three of my kids to send three of them to college. I mean, it's going to be outrageous. I've got to get a good price for them, too. <laughs> Well, I'm supposed to be not at peace about that? I'm supposed to be freaked out about that? If I'm reading my Bible, see, I don't find in the Bible that my kids can't have a good life unless they can have a college education. Do I want my kids to have a college education? Uh, if that's what God's called them to, yeah. If he hasn't, if he's given them skills in other areas and they can work hard and, and provide a living without doing that, I'm fine with that too. But see, my peace is not to be derived from that kind of idea. That's a, that's a life-stealing idea. The, the thief comes to steal. I start thinking the future blessing of my kids is wound up in whether or not they can have just the right financial world to live in. I don't find that. I find they can live in a third world country in a shack and meet the God of the universe and He can provide joy and peace in their life. What am I believing here? The life I'm supposed to be living. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled. Neither let them be afraid. Now this is a little bit confusing. Jesus, you just got finished saying that you were going to give us peace. And then you turn around and say, look, make sure your heart's not troubled. Make sure it's not afraid. Well, why would it be afraid? Why, why would I have fear and anxiety? You said you'd give me peace. Well, when you read the book of Acts, you'll find out why. The life that Christians lived in the book of Acts, it was an adventure. And they didn't know whether they'd be dead next week. So they didn't know whether they were going to step out in faith and something terrible might happen. But I leave you my peace. So somehow, in the life we're supposed to live, you could have peace and lose your head the next day. Wasn't, peace, wasn't Paul full of peace when he was sitting in jails? He's sitting in jails in a time when people were killing Christians, feeding them the lions, burying them up to their waist, and setting them on fire along the side of roads. But yet in the midst of that being the possibility, something else had come to him that he was able to have peace in the midst of it. See, be careful what brochure you and I are reading from. Because some of us think, well, we can't have peace unless we can take the vacation we were hoping to take. I mean, I need, some, I need to go lay on the beach, you know? I just need some peace and quiet. No, am I against vacations? No. You should take them. They're great. A blessing from God. God provides them for us. We should not apologize. But we shouldn't elevate them either. 
to where I can't have joy and peace unless I can have a vacation. It's misplacing those priorities. John 16. Turn over to John 16 real quick. Verse 1. This is all the same night. Night proclaiming peace and joy. John 16, verse 1. I have said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. (laughs) Jesus, why would we fall away? It's a life of peace and joy. (laughs) They will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. Wait, wait, wait. Whoever kills us? Are you saying that some of us are going to be killed? You just said peace and joy, Jesus. I'm not quite getting this connection here. You came that we could have life and have it abundant. You said the thief came to steal, kill, and destroy. You just said some of us would be killed. I'm confused now. Apparently, the kind of thing of death that Jesus is worried about is not so much the one that can take your body. He's worried about the death of the soul. How many of these ideas are killing man's soul? Buying into the wrong way of life, the wrong goals, the wrong pursuits. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he's offering service to God. And they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. But I have said these things to you, that when their hour comes, you may remember I told them to you. See, these stones that Jesus put in place along the way that keep us from being disillusioned, the knowledge of God having said this, these things I speak to you. You see, he would say that on numerous occasions so that they were going to be able to put back together, oh yeah, I'm standing on ground. Jesus described to me. He said it. He's with me. It's purposeful. The glory of God is being revealed. They were able to bring other things into their reality and benefit from what Jesus had taught them. Let's look at one last stone here, and this stone will catapult us into next week. Luke chapter 24. But can you see? Can you understand why I'm doing this? Jesus had a life in mind for his disciples. He had something in mind for them. These 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 were not the coffee table magazines on, in Jesus' office when you came to sit in there with him. He had a life in mind for them. He talked a lot about it. He sowed seeds and expectations and ideas into their heart in terms of what it would be like. He would tell them, wait for this. Look for that. This is going to happen. Pursue this. Live this way. Look at what he says here. Luke 24, verse 44. Then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. And behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you. But stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. Then he led them out as far as Bethany, lifting up his eyes, he blessed them. While he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy. And were continually in the temple, blessing God. Right. Great. Remember, this great joy is just a few days after some of you are going to be killed and delivered up to persecution. 
but yet they return with great joy. What were the elements of the joy that was there? Well, there was other things here. The life of joy was you are going to be proclaiming repentance and forgiveness to all nations. That's what you're going to be doing. Stand on that stone. Make sure at the end of your life you don't stand and say, I wasted it. I had the opportunity to proclaim repentance and forgiveness of sins to all nations, and I didn't. You will be my witnesses. Beginning here in Jerusalem, you're going to be my witnesses. Don't get to the end of your life. Go, who did I witness to? Not many. I wasted it. I wasted my life. And he says, wait in Jerusalem because something must happen in your life. You must be clothed with the power of the Holy Spirit in your life. Don't get to the end of your life and be able to say, as I heard a man tell me the other day, don't know much about the Holy Spirit. Just, you know, just kind of, it was kind of that, you know, I just don't. Did Jesus treat the Holy Spirit that way? He talked over and over again about Him. About the effect that He would have on your life. About His coming. About don't go anywhere until... Don't get to the end of your life and go, you know, I really didn't know much about the Holy Spirit. I didn't know much about the ministry of the Spirit. didn't know much about moving in the Spirit. didn't know much about being affected by the Spirit. didn't know much about experiencing the Spirit. Because in that moment, the next word would be, I've wasted it. The life I was meant to live, the life I was meant to wait for, wait, wait for, I missed it. All right, go ahead and come up. Move to close. As we move through the characters and pages that we're going to discover, Jesus lays this foundation. Here's the life you're meant to live. And then the disciples in the first century set out to live that life. And we get to watch their lives on paper here. And we get to learn from their experiences and from their pursuits and from their values and from their goals. As we do that, I just kind of threw a couple of examples in here. Life that is one of abundant joy and peace, which Jesus promised, is characterized by things like a supernatural life. And there's many more than this. But if you just read the book of Acts, you'd say, hey, what characterizes this life? Well, it's a supernatural life. It's way in Jerusalem. It's be clothed with power. It's be baptized and be filled with the Holy Spirit. It's a flexible life. You don't ever stop to think that the 120 sitting around in the upper room, what did what they do for work during those days? What the ones do that left home and left family and left businesses, fishermen, tax collectors? So the Christian life, it, it's not like this straight line from college degree to retirement, accumulating houses and stuff along the way. It's a life that's flexible. It's full of change. It's God to turn your life upside down tomorrow and change it. What if I don't want that? What if I just, see, I just get comfortable? Well, then it's because you have an idea. You have a thief in your life who's stealing the very life God wants to give you. Well, I don't like to live that close to the edge. Why? Because I like things to be predictable. I like them to be safe. Read, the, read these people in the Bible. The path of Jesus' call was not a safe one. It was full of risk. 
they stepped out into the unknown. From costing them their lives, to losing family members, to losing finances. I guarantee you, at least one of these guys cashed in their 401k plan early. I guarantee it. (laughs) That's a joke. They didn't have 401k plans. These guys lived an adventurous life. It was an enterprising and radical life. Do you know how many of us are just, we're just, our personalities just, you know, they're just thieves. We don't want to try anything new. We don't want to bust out. We don't want to follow God into the great unknown. We don't want to live that way. We're going to observe a covenant community and a relational life. Whether they were comfortable with each other or not, they lived amongst each other a certain way. They were an evangelistic community. They lived and ate and breathed to expand the kingdom and to share the gospel into other people's lives. See, if we won't walk on these stones, then whatever Jesus said when he said, I came that you could have life and you could have it abundantly. I came to give you the good life. Put your foot here. And then put your foot here. And then put your foot here. And put your foot here. And I'm going to give you peace. Not like the world gives you. I'm going to give you that weird peace that passes understanding. It doesn't make sense that you have peace. I'm going to give you joy, even though it's not like the version that the world gets, because finally they got to have a vacation and get away from all the people that bother them, and now they can finally have joy until they go back home to those same people again. It's not that kind of joy. It's not that kind of life. It's a different life. This morning, let's stand up together. I want you to... Have a moment just to listen for the Lord, to zero in on wherever it is our, our address is this morning in this category. Just reflect and consider with me for a moment. What kind of life are you trying to create in order to experience abundant joy and peace? What are you really, really going after so that abundance of joy and peace can be yours? Well, if you find that those things are reflecting more of a suburban brochure than they are Jesus brochure, then, you know, the the one thing that's going to need to happen is wherever we are in that, we're going to have to let go of something. We're going to have to let go of some of those goals and priorities in our lives that really are thieves. They're stealing from us on a daily basis. They're keeping us captive. Let me give you this illustration to stick it in your head. There's a story about a group of men who were trappers and they were trying to trap these unique little monkeys on this island. The monkeys were much faster, difficult to catch, bounced from tree to tree. These guys couldn't get near these monkeys. But they noticed that the monkeys loved to eat these little beans that they would get out of a tree. So the trappers came up with an idea. They took a coconut and they chained the coconut to a tree. And they hollowed out the coconut, put a little hole in the coconut, just big enough for the monkey to stick his hands inside. And inside the little coconut, they would put the little beans that the monkeys loved. Well, 
when they put their hands in and they'd grab the beam, they would make a fist. Well, now they couldn't get their hands out. See, the monkeys wanted the beans so bad that they wouldn't let go of the beans. And as long as they held onto the beans, they couldn't go free either. It wasn't until they would drop the beans that their hand could slide out and they could actually go free. Now, the monkeys didn't do that, and they all ended up getting captured. Now, for you and I today, there are, there are little beans available for us. They're very attractive. They bring some sense of peace and comfort to our lives. We stick our hands into this land of suburbia and we grab hold of these things and we don't want to let them go. And as long as we hold on to them, they hold on to us. And we don't have peace and we don't have joy and we're living from paycheck to paycheck full of fear. We're jealous. We're angry. We don't like our lives. We're comparing with others. And we're bound up. And listen, until we're willing to drop those things. We're not going to go free. And the sad thing is, we're not going to live the life we were meant to live. So what I want, I want us to take a moment for the Holy Spirit to, to show you where you are this morning. The days ahead, the next few weeks as we look at the life that we're supposed to live. Let Him inform your heart this morning. Are you needing to let go of some things? Bow your head. Just get alone with the Lord for a moment. If you're wondering whether you are fist closed, holding on tight, well, the way to do it is to ask yourself, are you experiencing peace and joy in your life? Would you label your life as abundant life? Life like God has it right now. If you'd answer no, then you have great grounds to suspect your fist is tightly closed around things that have become priorities that never should have gotten to the top of your list. And probably, if you'll think for a moment, you just didn't track real well with the thought of how concerned are you about being baptized in the Holy Spirit? I haven't been bothered by that. I'm not real evangelistic in my lifestyle. Don't reach out. Don't witness a whole lot. Power of God. I've been circling the same sins for a long time. I don't know much about the power of God. The thief comes to steal, to kill, and destroy. Those little beans in your hand, they are thieves. They are stealing the very vitality of your life. The life you were meant to live is being stolen from you. Lord, I pray this morning for us. I pray this as a gathering of people that you love, that you've brought us together, Lord. Would you give us an awareness of how much our pursuits and our values and our dreams and our hopes and our aspirations have gotten infected by the world and the setting in which we live. God, we are chasing peace in the form of suburban peace and suburban joy and suburban values and ideas. God, this morning, would you open our eyes to a liberation 
God, a very liberation from the things that we live the most amongst. God, and you probably will have us to remain in the settings in which we live. But God, there's a big difference between being in those settings and being controlled by those settings. God, may there be no one here who is looking at their life and will continue to look at their life through the lens of, I've wasted it. I miss the things that God said were most precious, the experiences that he said were most important. They don't characterize my life. Well, Lord, let today, let this season for us as a church, God, come with grace to liberate us into the very lives that you intended us to have, that we might have stories to tell, smiles on our faces, joy flooding our hearts that come from a place that mysteriously you have brought into our hearts. If you're here this morning, you're just kind of interacting with the Lord in your own heart and and you're not sure that you're really right with God. You're not sure that you're in right relationship with God. You're not sure that God is your father and that you and you and him are on speaking terms. If that's where you are this morning, listen, these issues we talked about this morning, those things in your hand are the very things you need to put down in order to come and embrace a God who wants to save you. Come into your life. Change your life. Pour out his love and his grace and his purpose and his hope for you. Jesus issues the invitation to you this morning. Come to me, all of you, who are burdened and heavy laden. Take my yoke on you. If you want to take Jesus' yoke, you have to put down the yoke you got. If in your life you have lived hell-bent trying to get the greatest education and get the greatest job, have the most money, be the most successful, or maybe you've partied yourself into oblivion, you're sick of drinking another drink or having another drug or chasing after another thing that brings pleasure, and you're just as empty as you've ever been, well, then take that yoke off. Drop the beans in your hands and say, God, I want you. I want you to come into my life this morning. I want you to come into my life right now. I want to give you my life. I want the life. You said you came to give me life. Well, I want it. Come into my heart right now. Give me a new day in my life. I want to start over again. I want to experience you and the purpose that you had for my life. Lead me from now on. you're here this morning and sincerely in your heart those are the desires of your heart well then god knows your heart and he knows whether you're responding to him right now or whether you're saying i won't let go i can't let go these things mean too much well, if you have responded this morning maybe if somebody that invited you this morning or somebody that you know let them know that it's going to help you to take steps to keep pursuing god if you don't have somebody here you can tell come find me after service introduce yourself if i don't know you Tell me, hey, you know what? This morning I told God I wanted to come into my life and I really meant it. Lord, thank you for helpful insights from your word. Lord, thank you for keeping us from missing what is most important. Thank you for rescuing us from ever getting to the point in our life where we look back full of tears saying, I wasted it. Lord, let us fulfill the dreams you have had for our lives. That we might have the joy and peace and abundance 
you have promised and desired for us. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Bless you guys. Have a wonderful week.